Good afternoon, universe, and welcome to another episode of Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition, breaking down the stronghold bad opinions of the enemy and setting up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and we are on a journey, a journey not only through this veil of tears into the life of the world to come, but also on a journey through Dr. Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics. We're just into volume one, believing this, believing that when God speaks, when he sends out his word, when we say it doesn't return void, what we mean by that is that he does so in such a way that we can hear it, we can believe it, which means understand it, which means we can also speak it back to him. That is, we can confess, we can same say, we can repeat, and it doesn't change what those words really are. It's not just a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of truth. St. Paul tells us Christians hunger for this truth. Watch your life and doctrine closely, right? Doctrine doesn't divide, it unites. The time is coming, however, where people will divide the church by not putting up with sound doctrine, he says. Instead, to suit their own desires, they're going to gather together teachers to teach what their itching ears would rather hear. But you, Christian, hold firmly to that trustworthy message as it has been taught. Why? Because it is your salvation. It is the knowledge of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus himself. Without that hunger for the truth, man, we're going to forget that thing and put in place all manner of golden cows, let me tell you. So, to help us dig through some of Dr. Pieper today on theology as doctrine and moving from what he calls subjective theology, what does that mean, to objective theology, we got some regular guests Pastor, oh, 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 and I moved my stuff, and now it's not there. Come on, Jonathan. Here we go. There we go. Regular guest, Pastor Timothy Witterstein. He's pastor at Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington. And regular guest, we haven't heard his voice for a while, young chap, Aaron Hamilton, pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lisbon, North Dakota. Gentlemen, it is it is good to chat with you and hear your voices again. It's good nice to be travel. back. I got you guys on a little loud. That's all right. That's my fault. That's my fault. So, all right. So we are on. (laughs) Glad to have you, Tim. We we are on page uh, 51 of Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, Volume 1. We just spent several weeks going through Section 9 on theology as aptitude or what he calls subjective theology, which I got to admit, I'm still a little confused about his use of that term and where he's getting it because it's not the way we would normally talk as modern or postmodern people about the subjective and the objective. So let's come back and hit that in a moment. But first, theology is aptitude. We've covered that the pastor, as a human, is expected to have certain qualifications— which are indeed matters of theology. They're things the Bible teaches which are true. Those qualifications include things like, you know, being a Christian. That's kind of the first one. Uh, the second one is that he has to confine himself to teaching God's word in the name of God. That he doesn't teach uh, less than or more than God's word. And with that, that he would teach all of God's word, that there isn't anything that he takes away from Christian doctrine. And finally, he not finally, uh, next to finally, penultimately, he has to be able to refute false teaching, right? So it's teach what is true, teach all of what is true, and refute, that is, call out as wrong what is false, and then finally, be willing to suffer for that reality. All of this is what he calls subjective theology. Today, we're going to move into the objective, but but first, I mean, I know Pastor Winterstein and Pastor Hamilton, you both can probably answer this uh, uh, equally as well, uh, uh, so I'll just go throw it at, at you, Pastor Hamilton, first. When you hear the words subjective and objective, though, how did you? How do you think of those terms normally meaning? Not what Peeper's talking about, but most of the times when we talk about that distinction, what are we talking about? Normally, when I hear subjective, I think uh, 
something that's relating to me, something on the inside of me. Objective is more, uh, we use the term objective reality, that it is objectively, it is there, we can touch it, we can feel it, we can't change it, we can act upon it, it can act upon us, but we can't actually change it. It is just there. Winterstein? Yeah, no, I agree. That's, we, we tend to think of subjective as something, you know, that, that, that we sort of experience and therefore it changes from person to person, whereas objective, although I don't know how many people believe that there is even an objective reality, but, <laughs> but uh, objective would, would be something that, that doesn't change according to our experience of it. Uh, at least that's, you know, that's how we that's how I normally think of those, I mean, those words. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you guys on this. It, for me, I always kind of think of subjective as being how I feel, right? It's, it's, it's my feelings. It's my experience. And objective is the thing that makes me, <laughs> makes me feel that way or, or doesn't. Like, I, I can't change it. So, you know, the rain falling on my face is an objective reality. It's a fact. It doesn't change. Uh, How how I experience that, is it cold? Is it warm? Do I like it? Do I not like it? That's subjective. This is the way we normally use those terms, but I don't think that's what Peeper's talking about at all. And that's part of what gave me a lot of trouble as I was rereading through this, you know, 10 years post-seminary now, and, and, and working on it the last couple of weeks with the other guys. Because he talks about this subjective thing, and then he starts talking about things that are true. And I've always thought with that subjective being only a matter of feelings, I would I would put truth in the realm of the objective, right? And then, again, as opposed to experience in the realm of the subjective. But that, that's just not what he's doing here. But am I, am I right? And that's kind of normally where you'd put truth is in the objective realm? Yeah, I Absolutely. Would. Go ahead. Uh, uh, you know, the— it's clear that he means subjective in a positive sense here because he's just, as you say, he's just spent the last few pages uh, talking about subjective theology as the aptitude to teach no more and no less than God's word. Uh, well, that's a good thing, uh, and he says it's a good thing, but but uh, uh, so he clearly thinks of that as, a, as the positive sense of, at least if I'm hearing this correctly, as the subject— uh, is formed and able uh, to teach God's word uh, as a pastor. You know that's the only way. I, I, the subject being the pastor. Um, that's that's how it seems to be. I think I like. I think, go ahead, go ahead, Hamilton. Well, it might be helpful to throw into this conversation. Um, uh, what Peeper's doing here is he's. What the what the section before this was on the aptitude, the subjective theology. We're going to get into the objective theology today, but uh, to introduce that, he had a little small subsection before uh, chapter nine, um, where he says, "Theology denotes, in its subjective sense, the knowledge of God and of divine matters. In its objective sense, it designates the doctrine of God." So I think there is a a bit of um, what we were trying to say with the subjective. He's talking about how the theology relates to us. It's it, it's true, it's not going to change, but it is going to uh, relate to us in more of a subjective way, but uh, objective theology is simply just the body of doctrine. So it's it's almost like, I always hated when I would be at a chapel service somewhere and someone would pull this, this out, because it's kind of usually used for, for pietism a little bit, but it's the difference between the knowledge of Jesus and knowing 
Jesus, if I can say it that way, right? So you have this this objective truth. Jesus died. Jesus rose. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. You can't change it. But then there is the experience of believing it to be true and knowing that to be true. And then that is particularly something that is applied to the requirements of a pastor. So as theology through the church engages us, one of the things it does is it forms men to be pastors and sets requirements on, on what, you know, who is allowed to be in that office. At the same time, then I think, I think this still applies also to all Christians and that it's going to form you, right? That, that, that the knowledge of Christ crucified comes and it doesn't just sit there kind of in front of you like a math problem. It, it, there are people who get really inspired by math problems, but it, it's going to, it's going to inspire you. It's going to regenerate you. It's going to have an impact, impact on you, impact on you. Yeah. Impact on you. And and this is, I think, why that, you know, it is on the subject of you doing something as opposed to being this external force, which is more what we're going to talk about today, that doctrine, that that knowledge itself that does the work and never changes. So before we uh, dig into the actual text proper, any any more thoughts on that? Well, it sounds, it sounds to me like, uh, similar to the sort of the Reformation distinction between you know, historical faith, that is knowledge of the facts of Christ's life and death and resurrection, uh, and actual uh, and justifying or saving faith, which is not only that those things happened, but that they happened for me and amen, thank the Lord. Uh, So, I mean, a little, what you were just saying sounds a little bit like that, where, whereas there are the facts but just knowing the facts as the devil does, that doesn't save you or justify you. But it, but it actually, uh, to believe that it's for me, um, uh, is a different sort of knowledge. Hmm. Uh, would it be fair to say then that subjective or objective theology is just that the, the, the corpus of doctrine and then the, um, the subjective theology is that thing that the Holy Spirit grants to us so that we can know that it is indeed for us? Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Certainly the first thing you're right on. I mean, I don't think, so far as I'm reading the text of, of what Peeper's saying, the objective thing makes sense. It's the body of doctrine. It's the subjective mm-hmm. thing. I'm, I'm struggling to get the word subjective as I've learned to use it in postmodern theory, right, to get that word to fit with whatever he's talking about from 150 years ago, which clearly he was engaging a different philosophical position, I think, at that point, or even maybe borrowing that language. He, he will say that today a little bit, you know, that the, who he calls the classic Lutheran theologians is like, wait a minute, that's who you are, dude, right? But he's got, he's got an even further back look that he's taken at that point. So, all right. So the first sentence in section 10 on, on page 51, this is where we're getting our, our word from that we're, we're bouncing around here. He says, since subjective theology is the aptitude to teach no more or no less than God's word, that is the whole previous section, as the church of our day possesses it in the written word of the apostles and the prophets, objective theology in the sense of doctrine is nothing more and nothing less than the presentation in oral and written form of the doctrine presented in Holy Scripture. So there is, I mean, God, I think we're still maybe a little bit off because like there is, <laughs> there is, Scripture isn't either of these things, at least as the way he just said it right there. Scripture stands in the middle, right? And yeah. so Scripture is doing this thing to you so that you are able to teach it. And yet there is this thing that it teaches, which you can take out of scripture and you can say it again. And it's still true. Right. And, and it, and that's the objective thing, this, this written doctrine. And he'll say more about what that means, but 
I, goodness gracious. I I feel like I didn't pay enough attention in seminary is what I feel like. <laughs> There's always more. Um, but I think you're right about that part because the subjective theology is taking what is in the scriptures, taking the doctrine, and he, as he says, uh, organizing it um, and compiling it, putting it under its each each subject under its proper head and arranging them in the order of their relationship. So, so not just reading the scriptures, but understanding how they sort of fit together and putting them uh, in a in a sort of systematic form um, seems to be what he is after there. Yeah, I think this is going to be cleared up for us a little bit when we uh, near the end of the next page. So I'm I'm interested to keep moving on. I, I I'm with you on that. Although I'm going to throw another kind of uh, bit out here, just just by way of you use the word system, Pastor Winterstein, and I think it is kind of important then to see that as we were all taught at seminary. Although maybe I think at Fort Wayne you guys changed this up a little bit, but I'm sure you still got it. There are four kind of classic schools of teaching within the seminaries, and you're supposed to you know get get something from all of them: exegesis, systematics, historical, and practical. I don't know if we can call practical classic, but it certainly is, is one of the four that they, they kind of bounce around there. And what we're, what we are doing a little bit here when we just distinguish the scriptures from the doctrine, we're talking about exegesis versus systematics. And what that means is reading what the Bible says and understanding it, and then repeating it in an organized form. So as we understand it uh, and like you said, we're gonna we're gonna talk more about why we would do that uh, as we go. But just so the the listener can kind of have that difference, if we throw those terms out there, that systematic is sort of the organizing of what we find in the Bible, rather than just like copying the Bible right over and over again. So the catechism is a systematic theology, whereas if you're reading Matthew's Gospel, now you're doing exegesis. You're reading directly from the text itself. Um, the other, uh, I lost it. There was another piece too that that flows into that, but maybe it'll come back as we as we go forward. So. The next sentence, which is going to take us on to page 52 as we, as we read it, says, The Christian doctrine is not produced by the theologian. I think we've been saying that a lot so far, and that, that's good to, to repeat this. All that the Christian theologian does is that he compiles the doctrinal statements contained in Scripture in the text and context, groups them under their proper heads, and arranges these doctrines in the order of relationship. So a moment ago, I used the small catechism as an example, a stellar example of this, right? What does Dr. Luther do? He takes what he finds in the scriptures, all of it, and he tries to organize it in a way that a father can teach his children simply the, the, the boiled down essence of the entire thing. And in that sense, he's not making theology— Right? He's not producing truth. Rather, he is he's organizing that truth. What, a, what an interesting thought. I think um, Pieper does a, an excellent job of pointing this out, that the job of the theologian is simply to, uh, he's quoting Luther here, but it's simply to repeat and preach what we've already learned and heard from the prophets and the apostles. So I, whether you're a trained uh, pastor that you went to the good seminary in Fort Wayne, or even if you ended up going to the other one in St. Louis, lulls, um, lulls out loud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, or, or if you're a layman, you're still a theologian. You are to, uh, as a father or as a mother or whatever relationship you are to take the words of scripture and repeat them in a way, um, 
and, and preach them to those in your life. Winterstein, chime in. <laughs> yes, I agree. Uh, <laughs> Good. You know, I, I, <laughs> um, I'm never sure, I mean, man. I really am not. You know, we have yeah. you on mainly because we're trying to make sure we convert you to our side. You know that, right? <laughs> so the the I mean, it's it's true that the that the that the important thing is not to say anything other. And so you know, it it makes me a. I guess even though I appreciate and my heart is in the systematics department, uh, it makes me, I'll be honest, it makes me a little uncomfortable with, you know, sort of taking doctrines out and compiling them. It seems a little uh, sort of mechanical uh, to me, but I think that that's what generally what we mean by sort of a secondary uh, uh, theological task, whereas the primary one is proclaiming that right to the to the people there's a secondary task of sort of uh, uh putting that together and organizing it and i think that's necessary but it's kind of behind the scenes right it's a kind of a uh, uh an initial thing but it's not the primary thing because the primary thing you know you could just read systematics but but it's got to be as we as i say it's got to be proclaimed to the to the hearer as for them and not simply as a sort of doctrinal statement. Um, and especially, you know, that's a, that's a difficult thing. Um, in our culture, especially, uh, there have to be doctrinal statements, but you know, how are we going to sort of make that, uh, uh, bring that to the people. Yeah, um, I think that's huge. I want to pick that up on the other side of this break. How do we translate dogma into proclamation? And, and yeah, it, we'll be right back. Curious about an active retirement in a Christ-centered community in Central Florida? Lutheran Haven's brand new residence, The Landings, offers spacious villa-style homes, convenient amenities, coupled with a low-maintenance lifestyle that makes for an ideal retirement. With more than 50% of the community already sold, now is the time to discover why so many have made the decision to call The Landings at Lutheran Haven Home. Call 888-298-5590 or visit lutheranhaven.org KFUO to discover how you you can get the most out of your retirement at Lutheran Haven. Hi, this is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU, inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. What are all the things you witness online in a day? Cats playing piano. Selfies on your feed. Your friend's picture being turned into a nasty meme that's been shared 50 times. 51. 52. When someone's being bullied online, it's hard to know what to do. Now you can speak up with the witness emoji. It looks like an eye in a speech bubble, and it's in the symbol section near the clocks in your phone. You'll let the world know it isn't cool, and you'll let your friend know you care. Learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. 
Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson with an invitation for you to join us for an enjoyable Christmas lights tour aboard a Mid-American bus. Friday, December 15th. Historic Perry County churches that'll be viewed include Hill of Peace, Saxony Lutheran Memorial, Concordia Frona, Trinity Lutheran in Altenburg, where you will hear the famous Perryville Choir, Emmanuel in Altenburg, and a wonderful dinner at Mary Jane's in Perryville. Call me at 314-996-1520. 314-996-1520. Hey, listen to Cross Defense, breaking down the worldview of the world. And replacing it with the Word of God. Talking with Pastor Timothy Winterstein, Pastor Aaron Hamilton about page 5152 of Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics. I promise you it's more interesting than it sounds. It's actually, well, it, strangely enough, what he's really talking about here is Christian Dogmatics and the process of what that means, right? Of moving from Scripture to our confession of Scripture. And yet, as you were saying, Pastor Timmerstein, Pastor Timmerstein, Pastor Winterstein, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. On the on the other side of the break, there, you know that there's there's this sort of distinction between the systematizing or the organizing of what Scripture says, and we can kind of get trapped in that, and that the language of say compiling and arranging the doctrines, if that kind of becomes its own thing, you lose sight of another word you used, which was the the proclaiming of that. And I'm right there with you on that. I, I sometimes am. I feel like one of the reasons that the world doesn't hear what Lutherans are saying these days is because we talk a lot more about how we organize what we believe than we just kind of say what we believe. And and as a result, something gets lost in translation with the world and maybe even with, you know, the hearer in the pew. Is that kind of what you're getting at or, or is it something else? No, I, I think it's I think it's that. Um and part of it is something that uh, I forget, one of the professors, you know, instead of sort of always explaining, uh, here's where I'm coming from and this is the way I'm doing this, just act like you believe it, right? <laughs> or talk in, in the way that that is from that perspective rather than sort of doing all the, the pre, I don't know, uh, the all of the work ahead of time and of explaining all of that, just... You know, so in other words, just talk like you believe baptism is what it is, or or the Lord's Supper is what it is, or the Word of God is what it is, instead of explaining all of that. Now, sometimes there's going to be questions, and you have to, and that's where I think the the sort of systematic task is helpful. But but understanding this is what is true, this is what's from the scriptures, and simply speaking that way. Um, Rather than doing all the all the extra work when it's maybe not necessary, and and uh, let, letting the word of God do its work rather than trying to do it for it. Hamilton, you right. want I, I agree with that. Um, I, at first, I wasn't sure if I was going to, but but you finally <laughs> explained it, and I I do like it. No, it's uh, I think at at the very least, it'll make my sermons stop being an hour and a half long. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you whippersnapper! Yeah, uh, well, that's uh, what they teach you there at that other seminary. But okay, so, jeez, uh, I I am uh, <laughs> sorry. There's another side up. to this. No, no, it's, it's great. It's actually hilarious, and that's a good thing. I, there's another side to this, though. So, one of the struggles I have with the way people is describing this here. So we're going to take these scriptures, which are perfect, right? With it, we've just said they're inerrant, they're without error, and they need to be proclaimed. And then we're going to compile and organize them. And so does this imply that they are somehow 
disorganized or that, that they are somehow less than perfect as they are? Or, to put it another way, do we have to take what the scriptures say and make it more practical in order to teach it? Right? Is is what the Bible says, is the dogma ultimately not very valuable until we do this task of systematizing it? And I'm gonna obviously I think the answer is no, right? But I, I don't want to go past that idea without batting it around here and saying why that's not what we mean. Yeah, I think that uh it's sort of the second sentence up there about um scripture itself arranged according to doctrines. Uh, and all the parts that go to make up this body of doctrine. I mean, in other words, uh, that I that's a I love the picture of a body of doctrine. I think that the or, it's organic. Although the next part, I'm a little unsure about the least important, no less than the most important articles. Hmm. I think he means of a systematic theology must be based on scripture. So that I. Totally, obviously. And and if you try to do theology about something that's not based on the scriptures, you're gonna have some problems and you're you're just gonna be speculating. But let's look at that. Let's look at that sentence though, because I, that is interesting too. So so it does he actually mean that there's unimportant Bible, right? Uh, accordingly, objective theology, right? This is this positive statements of God's word that he himself has and has made, and they're eternal. Uh, objective theology is, and here's where he talks about the classics, as our old Lutheran dogmaticians say, nothing else than scripture itself, but shifted, arranged according to doctrines. That is, and what do we mean by doctrine? According to points of topic, basically, right? Uh, hence, all the parts that go to make up this body of doctrine, the corpus doctrina, the least important, no less than the most important articles must be based on scripture. Uh, but again, what what is the least important article? You know, uh, as opposed to, I would say, you know, you can be saved without knowing who Jehoshaphat is, right? Like, it, it's possible. But that Jehoshaphat in his existence, in his history, connects to the lineage of, of David's throne. And David's throne is a promise of a covenant that God made to save the world through a king. And that king is Jesus. You can't be saved without Jehoshaphat. Right. And so you have that other side of this thing. Maybe that's not even what he's talking about at all. And I'm, I'm making, you know, a, a mountain out of a molehill here. I don't think that's what he's talking about exactly. Um, that being said, I can't really tell you what he is talking about. Um, but I, to relate to what you said, I mean, I did have someone say to me, um, I don't think it was, it was here where I am now. It might have been some other place. But someone said to me, well, you know, you always talk about these Old Testament people and all these different names, and I'm 60-some years old, and... I've been a Christian all my life, and I haven't known these names, so I don't need to know them now. I, I don't think that's necessarily a Christian way of going about the Bible. Yeah, yeah, I, I think they're. I think Christians are. They always desire to hear more, more of what God has to say. And if Jesus is right, <laughs> I think he is. <laughs> I think he is. Uh, if Jesus is right when he says it's all about me in Luke 24 and John 5, uh, then then there is no such thing as sort of an unimportant, uh, uh, you know, even if we can't see the importance of it, um, what what is the, the story that's being told? I, you know, it's interesting. I think 
uh, Peeper, there's a footnote at the bottom, talks about that in this body of doctrine, there's no place for even one article and be it the least one, which is not based on Scripture, which to me seems a little bit more rhetorical. In other words, uh, right. uh, if even if there were such a thing as the least possible important thing that a systematic theology is going to talk about, uh, it has to be based on Scripture. I mean— Obviously, right? I th- so I think that's a really neat point because you kind of get that. I'm glad you said that because I didn't. I didn't see that. So when he he says the least important, no less than the most important. That is, they're the same, right? The, the, whatever you might think is least important is just as important, and and must be based on scripture for it to be true. Yeah, yeah. And so that's that's a necessary thing for us to to realize. Um, and and I think what it also should do um, is drive us back to the scriptures to see um, wh- what is it, why is this here? That, I think that's kind of the question. Uh, if, again, based on Jesus' own words in Luke 24 and John 5 about, you know, he goes through the entire Old Testament, Hebrews scriptures, Old Testament, and tells the disciples, this is, this is all about me. If that's, if that's true, then what it should do, I think, is drive us back uh, as Pastor Hamilton is saying, you know, we can't say no. That stuff's not important. We we should be driven back to say, why is this here? Because it's leading up to Jesus in some way or another, or it's picturing Jesus, or it's teaching Jesus, or it's prophesying Jesus, or something. Uh, so why is this particular <laughs> thing here? And I think that helps answer a lot of questions that people have, particularly about the Old Testament. Yeah, let us move on from milk to solid meat, and by that he means let's figure out what on earth Melchizedek's all about, right? Because he means <laughs> he means something somehow, some way. I still want to throw this back out here, though. Does the scripture need to be made more practical than it already is? And I'm being inflammatory on purpose, because if your answer is no, then why do we have a small catechism? And if your answer is yes, then doesn't that mean that the scriptures are impractical? And obviously, I think both sides of that are, are a little bit hyperbolic, but I think it's worth wrestling with. Uh, would, wouldn't it be possible then to say that instead of those two extremes that you gave us, um, perhaps systematic theology is just, uh, in a very crude way, dumbing it, dumbing down the Holy Scriptures so that simple men can understand it, which is exactly what the small catechism is. Hmm. And, and, and really, the small catechism is, uh, is, is it's a summary, but it's not a summary in such a way that it's not like cliff's notes where where you don't need to then uh, actually read the book uh it's it's there to show us here is the central organizing principle of the entire scriptures which we take from the scriptures themselves and so y- everything sort of revolves around this and uh so th- you know it's it's a map that that uh, i think I think uh, Dr. Aaron at the seminary used to say it this way: "Doesn't mean you you have been to the place if you if you are looking at a map." Um, and uh, so, systematic theology, right? That that can help you sort of understand the organizing principles. It can also go the other way and sort of, uh, you know, uh, obscure that. But but the point is, here's what's at the heart of it. And uh, so, good. I would think a good systematic theology would do that. Uh, would echo the scriptures in that way. Yeah, I, I think in many ways what you both have just said and said well, it, it is in fact the, princi- the, the, the idea behind, the principle behind the show itself, which is to believe 
that repeating God's word, confessing it again, letting it come in, be heard, be understood, and be spoken, even with different vocabulary, is not a diminishing of God's word, but a testimony to its truthfulness, that, that it's bigger than our own language, is bigger than our, our own human babble condition, and breaks through that and keeps expanding so that it can be said again with an amen that doesn't add to it, but repeats it at almost like a, a higher decibel level, right? Or, or a higher volume or, or a, with a ma- more magnificent harmony every time that it's that is reconfessed and restated again. Uh, or as I think Sasa says it uh, this way at the start of his, his Lonely Way, or maybe it's the, the We Confess anthology, but that everything that we do as Christians is understanding what it means to say Jesus is Lord. And that that phrase itself keeps unpacking itself more and more, both in our personal experiences and in the life of the church, according to what the scriptures has revealed, and that as false false teaching comes along and denies the truth of it in one way or the other, we're sent as church back to scripture to find the truth of it and confess against the darkness how Jesus as Lord means what it means in the present age. And this is not the insufficiency of scripture. And you said, Pastor Hamilton, it's the insufficiency of sinful man having to then wrestle with what the scriptures have brought to bear on us and for us and against us as well. I really appreciate talking with you old pastors. You make me sound a lot smarter than I am. Well, we're having to work at it. I mean, I went deep to make that <laughs> thing all make sense. So, no, it's, um, any thoughts before we jump? Because uh, he's going to kind of change directions here a little bit, uh, at least away from this practical and subjective or objective language here. Any any final thoughts on that before we go forward? I I really appreciated the, the, the way you were talking about confessing the scriptures because that's that's really the task i think uh in each generation so you're not saying something new you're not saying something like wow we never nobody ever recognized this before or i i have suddenly been illuminated to uh to say this word that no one in the scriptures no one is studying the scriptures ever recognized but to confess again for our time and place the same uh, word, and I think that that's that's an important uh, an important point, and that it becomes a uh, you know we sing with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, and that choir continues to grow. He's going to hit that with this quote from Luther in the next sentence. Exactly what you just said, I think. All theologians since the days of the apostles, there when, by theologians he means students of scripture who wrote down that we still study. He doesn't just mean Christians, although you you know it should apply to Christians too. But all theologians are scholars of the Bible since the days of the apostles. Says Luther, must confine themselves in their teaching to the uh, to the teaching of the apostles. Quote. We are catechumens and pupils of the prophets. Let us simply repeat and preach what we have heard and learned from the prophets and apostles. And so, yes, part of this is that when you go to church on Sunday morning, what's one of the first things that happens after a couple of hymns? The pastor, or sometimes somebody else, but often the pastor, like, literally repeats what the scripture says. He gets up and he reads it, right? And the scriptures say this and he says that loud and then he preaches it, which is again to repeat it, to confess it, but not by just reading it again, but by doing what we're doing with Peter here a little bit, just running around and around what it means over and over and over again. If you ever get a chance to read Luther's church postals or any of the sermons that are printed in Luther's works, you'll find out that's what he does. I mean, he just kind of dwells on the meaning of the text in front of you. And I I would contend that we we do well to kind of th- rediscover that in our present age as we hope for a, a revival of preaching in our midst. 
there's a really cool thing that Peeper does. Uh, it's later on in this section, um, but he says that at the seminary, they, in their homiletics courses or the preaching courses, they encourage their students to go through the sermons that they're going to preach and find anything that isn't scripture, isn't from scripture, and just get rid of it, delete it, and then go through again and do the same thing again. Hmm. Uh, and I, I have found a few more steps in my my preparations. Not that I regularly try to preach something that's not scripture, but even when I'm not trying to do it, every once in a while, those sinful human opinions come in there and sneak in, and it's it's good to have uh, have someone else look at my sermons and say, oh, no, you're wrong here. This isn't actually what Scripture says. And the idea, I think, is not that you would just, again, read the text, but that as you're expositing, you're saying, this is what this means, your sentences are based on other passages of Scripture that you're bringing to bear Mm -hmm. on what it means so that Scripture is interpreting Scripture. And it's almost like you could have like a footnote for every sentence that is a reference point to some other Scripture. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, I think so. He says later on that when he says the word repeat, he doesn't mean the the legalistic, okay, I said this Bible verse, now I'm going to move on to a different Bible verse. That's that's not what he's saying, but I I think you you said it well. All right, well, then we're going to stop right there and come back on the other side of this break and finish out looking at this section of Peeper's Christian Dogmatics, Cross Defense. Stick around. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. Every day, things happen that affect the lives of Lutherans worldwide. Whether it's mercy efforts to a disaster-stricken community, threats to religious liberty, or cultural trends, World Lutheran News Digest takes an in-depth look at one issue each week as I interview newsmakers and experts, while Sarah Golseth presents a quick look at the week's news. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 and Saturday at 9.30 on Worldwide KFUO. A fragment may be just a small piece, but in the case of the Wyman fragment from the 3rd century, a highly significant piece. It's a glimpse of the New Testament. On one side of the fragment is Romans 4, 23 through 5, 3. On the other side of the fragment is Romans 5, 8 through 13, including Romans 5, 1, a key verse in Christian theology. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is thought to be the second oldest New Testament fragment on vellum. And in recent years, the fragment has received considerable attention by scholars. Impressive for a fragment originally discovered in a drawer in an antiquities shop. Engage with the Bible, this book of all books. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible, opening in November in Washington, D.C. Defense on Worldwide KFUO. Pastor Jonathan Fizz talking with Pastor Timothy Winterstein and Pastor Aaron Hamilton about 
objective theology, and by that we mean dogma, right? The, the truth of the scriptures repeated, same said, confessed again, and that this is ultimately what the church confines itself to, and that this confining is not a legalism. If anything, is the freedom of standing upon the rock that Jesus says, build your house on this and the storm can't blow it over. We left off on page 52 with a, a quote from Luther that, that Peeper threw out. He's got another one for us to close the paragraph. He says, Luther enforces the demand that the theologians simply, quote, repeat the words of the apostles after them with the solemn warning, quote, neither ought any doctrine be taught or heard in the church, but the pure word of God, that is to say the Holy Scriptures, otherwise accursed, ooh, be both the teachers and the hearers together with their doctrine. And then Pieper gives us a little Latin. The same truth is expressed in the well-known axiom, maybe not as well known these days, quad non est biblicum, non est theologicum. Uh, what not is of the Bible, not is of the knowledge of God, I guess is the, the, the most literal I can get on that. You know, what's not from the Bible is not a subject of true theology is what he's saying there. So more of the same here, but that language about, you know, nothing else should be taught or heard in the church but the pure word of God. I got to say, that's just not what most Christians believe today. Yeah. No. <laughs> the, I mean, the whole thing is about theology. Seem today seems to be who can come up with the the newest uh, cutting edge thing, and and I think that probably is sort of related to the to the academic thing. You know, like publish or perish, and you know your academic dissertation had better be something that no one. You're, you have to you have to find something sort of unique to say um, that that sort of creeps into our theological study. And so, you know, how many of the books that are coming out on in, you know, modern theological books are are trying to do that, trying to say something new or something different or 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 reverse what has been a long held uh confession or something like that. So, no, probably not what's going on today. Well, I think that hits in in another way as well, though, because it's pretty common in generic Christianity, I think, to believe that the knowledge of God is something you find out in the world, right? So, you, like, you go to church and you, you get worked up by a song, and, and maybe you find some knowledge of God in the experience of the song, and then the pastor is going to teach you something that you're supposed to go out and, and do, though. You're supposed to go out and apply this. And as you go out then and search for God in the God moments of life, by the application of these biblical principles, you're going to find the knowledge of God there, somewhere other than in the scriptures themselves. And so it reminds me of Small Called, right, where, where Dr. Luther says we must insist that whatever is not of the word of God is, is from the devil. That it's not just the scholars that are that are not believing that these days, right? It, it really is the the thrust of American Christianity that the true knowing of Jesus comes not from Scripture, but from your finding Him. I don't know where, wherever you think you can find Him, and that can be anywhere from the building of a new megachurch that we got to have as many people in it as possible to the you know the adaptation of the South Beach the South Beach diet to uh, you know Philippians or something like that, right? It it, it the the well, hunger for man to look elsewhere. Consider the popularity. Sorry. Yeah. No. No. Please go. I was going to say, consider the popularity of something like Jesus Calling, which the entire point of it is, I'd, 
and the that's the a book, right? Said this. That's a book, right? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Uh, well, it's like a bunch of books and journals and marketing stuff, but um, <laughs> you know, the author has said that she just felt distant from the voice of God in the scriptures. And so she prayed that Jesus would speak directly to her. Mm-hmm. And that's what the book is, is her, what she thinks is Jesus speaking directly to her as opposed to the scriptures, which seem to put distance between her and God. And I mean, why would that, that be so popular except people? Oh, I lost you. Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Except that people... Uh, except that people think there's a distance between God and me when you put the scriptures there. I need somebody speaking directly into my heart or directly to me, which is the point of proclamation, as we were saying. And but it's a it's, you know it's a popular thing because of that. Hamilton. Uh, good Lord, have mercy. Mm. I this is this is a huge problem in the church today. Uh, I've had people come up and say to me about. Um, different points of doctrine that we teach according to the Bible, and they say, well, this this is the reason that our church is dying, and this is the reason that our denomination or our confession or our communion is going to go down the wayside. We've shot ourselves in the foot. We need to move away from this. And I always point back and I say, no, this is from the Bible, and that is our very source of life. This is this is where all of theology happens, and this is exactly what people are saying here. If it's not of the Bible, it's not real theology. We're like drug addicts that think that taking more of the drug is going to fix it. I, I'm rather convinced that the, the so-called dying of the American church, which isn't necessarily or should not be c- c- confused with the dying of the actual church. The actual church cannot mm-hmm. die. But the dying of the American church as we see it in the LCMS, and to some extent, is participating in this reality. It began by letting go of this belief. And as we let go of having the objective theology, theology to proclaim as true over and against all other teachings, gradually people start saying, well, then why am I listening to you? And, and, and yet we think that the answer is to let go of more, just like the dread addict thinking, well, the answer to my, my sickness of my withdrawal is to add more, a higher dose of the drug, but all it really does is it does kill the visible church at that point. And so, you know, an individual comes and they say, this is the reason why we're shrinking. No. No, we're shrinking because you don't believe this. I'm sorry, your friend. <laughs> That's why we're shrinking, right? That what Scripture says is no longer what we what we believe. Ugh. Right. If if you're convinced because your local congregation is shrinking, or because your local congregation, God forbid, is closing, and you're convinced that means that the church is dying or the church is dead, then you're no longer believing Christ's promise that the church will prevail. Speak yeah. about that for just uh, go ahead, go ahead, Tim. I was going to say that that's why we say, I believe Mm. in one holy Christian and apostolic church. We don't say I see it. And the, and, and really it's, it's really a lack of faith, a lack of true faith, uh, to look around and see the signs of things in the world and say, well, that, you know, the church is dying or, you know, that's not, that's not faith in the word of God. Well, and to think that because there are fewer Christians on the narrow way, which Jesus told us about, than then the wide way of the world, that that somehow means the church is failing. Like you said, it's, it's, it's not hearing what Jesus has said. It's not believing the scriptures to be true. But now we're now we're beating the horse a little bit in that. That's exactly what 
our problem is, if Jesus calling, and I'm not familiar with with that work, but if it really is saying the scriptures are insufficient, we need immediate revelation, then the church truly has ceased, well, not the church, what we see and call church has ceased to be of one with belief in itself or in itself, in the gift that makes it what it is. It no longer is church, right? And, and that's a scary place to be. Um, I don't want to take us. I don't want to miss this last paragraph. I've kind of taken us down this other rabbit hole, but I'm going to go ahead and read the, the last paragraph on page 52 to make sure we get it covered. Um, but it's it's golly, we're, it's we're in dark waters. Um, it follows that Christian theology is not made up of the variable notions and opinions of men, that is, the immediate revelation that is often preached as if it were truth, but is the immutable divine truth. Immutable, that means you can't break it. Immutable divine truth or God's own doctrine. Here's some more Latin. Doctrina divina, right? Not, not diva. Yeah. Divina, from God, divine. Divine truth. It has this quality because of the source from which it is drawn. According to the witness of Christ and his apostles and his own self-attestation in the hearts of Christians, there's what we got to say. You know, it's not that the self-attestation proves it, but it does prove itself. It creates faith. Holy Scripture is God's infallible word. And therefore, the doctrine taken from the Scripture is not, quote, after the tradition of men, Colossians 2, not man's doctrine, but God's own doctrine, the doctrine of our Savior, Titus 2, and in God's church, nothing but God's own doctrine may be preached and heard. The doctrine of the church is closed to all doctrines devised by men, which I guess uh, we can go wherever you guys want to go on this, but it really puts the lie to the idea that we have to have some sort of hook, right? We got to have some sort of trick to get people to come to church and listen to us, and then we'll give them Jesus. Uh, what Peeper seems to be saying is that the church lives and dies from the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus itself, and that is the hook that catches the fish if you go fishing. Yeah, it, hmm. it's that that first sentence. Uh, you, I think we see this uh, in the American church in particular. I don't. I'm not a, uh, familiar with other churches around the world, but in the American church, that Christian theology is not made up the, of the variable notions and opinions of men. And then you have sort of these. You have this sort of approach to the gathering of Christians where uh, there's not the proclamation of God's. Uh, divine doctrine, there is uh, a sort of, uh, I don't know, surface humility where we're all going to sit around and I don't have the truth and you don't have the truth, but we're going to sit around and sort of uh, talk about what we think and and uh, our experience and sort of in that way sort of circle around this unknowable truth of God. That's not what is supposed, I mean, why do we, there's a, there's a, a lack of uh, uh, we can be uncertain about ourselves as as much as we want, and we should be. But as soon as we're uncertain about what God is actually saying in Jesus Christ, and we don't have anything certain to proclaim, then we're no longer uh, in the realm of Christian faith or Christian doctrine as uh, Christian theology. And if the institutions we've created and call church fall apart. It's not because the church is dying, or it, maybe it's because the church is already dead so far as that institution has ceased to be one with the church. And th that's the scary thing, right? It's like a constant call to repentance. And another word I would throw out there, it's saying that Christianity is it's not about a building. It's not about an organization. It's not a social club. It's a conviction that is created by words God speaks. And those words are truer than we are, than all that we see. Hmm. Hamilton. I think this is yeah. this is the one of the problems with one of the many problems with modern ecumenism 
that uh, this whole idea that, well, we can't really know the scriptures for for what they are. We can't know true doctrine. Um, I mean, there's there are church bodies, whole church bodies who have adopted this and voted on it and said, well, this is true. We can't know anything absolutely, even about scripture. Um, and so they're willing to get together with people uh, with whom they, if they were actually honest, they have severe disagreements about, right? This is why the the one Lutheran church body who is supposed to say that this is Jesus' body and blood is able to go along with the Methodists, the Zwinglians, and everybody else who says, well, there's no way this is the body and blood of Jesus. Because for whatever reason, they say, well, we can't really know what the scriptures say. But it's a denial that of... It's a denial of what Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I mean, if if we start saying that we can't know what the Bible says, then we really are just building up on our own opinions. Yeah, and I, I think that's a, it's an important thing for preachers. Uh, I try to. If it's something where I would have to say, I think, I try uh, very hard to, uh, as you say, get rid of that out of my sermon. If I can't say, this is the word of the Lord, uh, I think Luther says you shouldn't be preaching at all. Um, and uh, so so the that's why the, the last sentence, I think, is so important. The door of the church is closed to all doctrines devised by men. That ought never to be heard. The, the words, I think this, I, as far as the proclamation, ought not to be heard from pulpits. Pastor Timothy Winterstein is pastor of, oh, my computer is not letting me look at your, your church right now. This is embarrassing. <laughs> Names for on the air. I'll turn it sideways. Pastor Timothy Winterstein is pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington. Pastor Aaron Hamilton, pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lisbon, North Dakota. I kind of wish we could keep talking about this, guys, because I think we're just kind of scratching the surface. But thank you so much for being on Cross Defense with me today. Thanks. It was fun. And uh, I really mean that. We're, we're just scratching the surface of what this is dealing with so far as the American context. And I, I, I like Pastor Winterson, I'd love to speak to the world context, but I haven't experienced enough of it. What I know is what's going on in America in terms of Christianity. What I know is what I see happening to churches, meaning both congregations and church bodies. And it's, it's like we have nothing to say. We go to get together to kind of maybe have some pie afterwards, and yet we, there there are men that will stand up and speak, sometimes women as well, and the, the, the worst of it is that they say, well, hopefully there's something, and we can call that thing God, and let's all just believe in that. And then you, you wonder why a 17 or a 16-year-old boy has no place for that in his life, has no desire to go back to that whatsoever. They, they, it's because there's nothing to convict him. There's actually nothing to believe. If you're going to build a house, you need a foundation to build the house on. That foundation cannot be made of sand. It's got to be made of rock. And, and worse than this, and this is where it really is terrifying, as Paul says, right, in 1 first, first Corinthians 15, we can be found to be misrepresenting God. And in that sense, God's not going to be for us, but against us. Well, goodness, got to end by telling you, get back to scriptures. Children, run back to what the truth and the rock really are. Cross defense. We'll catch you next week.
You've been listening to Cross Defense, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. Or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.